Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is part one of episode 44 in the book of John entitled Feed My Sheep, where we'll discuss John chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, it's hard to believe, but we've arrived at part one of our final episode in the book of John. What are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, it's a very exciting uh, book that we've been through, we've been studying, and it's been a marvelous study. To some degree, we've already come to the climax in the purpose of the book at the end of chapter 20, uh, which we'll talk about again today. Um, so this seems almost like an appendix or an addendum, but it's a very important one because it really has to do with reinstating Peter to his apostolic ministry and embracing him with the kind of authority I think the Lord wanted him to have going forward. So it's uh, also post-resurrection uh, appearance. So Jesus gives more, yet more evidence of his resurrection. So uh, a lot of good things in this chapter. Very good. Well, I'll go ahead and read the entirety of the chapter, John 21, 1 through 25, to set the stage for our conversation today. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So Andy, as we enter into this first section of this final chapter of John, when and where do the events of verses 1 through 14 take place and who's involved here? So Jesus goes back up north to the Sea of Galilee and it seems that these uh, disciples have just returned to the life they were doing before Jesus called them to follow him and become fishers of men. That's how Mark's gospel begins, and that's how the calling of the apostles uh, begins. They're fishermen, not all of them, but many of them, and uh, they just go back to fishing. And so um, Jesus also had told them that he would go ahead of them to Galilee. So they're all back up in the original area from which Jesus and his disciples came. The Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee, and so they've returned to that life of fishing. Now it says after these things, as the passage opens, you mentioned earlier a connection with what preceded in chapter 20. Anything that we need to talk about here? Sure. The purpose statement of the entire uh, gospel is what immediately precedes chapter 21. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so uh, that's the whole purpose of the Gospel of, of John, and one could argue it's the purpose of the entire Bible, and that is to bring us to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's given us all this. But interestingly, I think if we didn't have chapter 21, we wouldn't have a lot of post-resurrection interactions. We wouldn't, you would have the, the two encounters in the upper room, and then uh, right before that, the time at the tomb, and that's it. So this gives us a little more data of what we find out in the book of Acts, that Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples after his resurrection before he ascended to heaven. Mm. And this was one of those 40 days. That's helpful. What's the significance of the disciples' decision to return to fishing? I mean, mm. is that encounter with Jesus intended to remind us of earlier encounters with Jesus, like you mentioned? Well, it seems to be cast in that light. He does a, a, a repeat miracle, the great catch of fish. It happened at the beginning of his time with his disciples. Peter uh, had fished all night and caught nothing. And the other disciples, uh, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, seem to have been fishing partners. And, you know, they worked all night, didn't catch anything. And then Jesus says, go back out. And, you know, they don't want to, but they do. Just because you say so, I'll do as you say. Let down a big net and they catch, catch so much fish that the, the boats begin to sink. So that happened the first time. And then Peter begins to realize the greatness of Jesus and falls down on his knees in front of him and says, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And he said, from now on, you will be catching fish. Uh, men and not fish. And so uh, I think the fact that they that this miracle happens again is meant to connect again, mm -hmm. but also to connect with the calling. 
Hmm. You know, from now on, you'll be fishers of men. Now they're back to fishing. Yeah. And so it seems, I'm not finding fault with them, but it seems that Jesus has to refocus them on the mission, which is evangelism and missions. That's what they're called to do. Yeah, I love there's a phrase later on in the passage that was instrumental in my own uh, coming to faith. And that's a, just a simple phrase, follow me. Hmm. Uh, and that also, I think, takes us back. And so we'll, we'll deal with that in due yeah. time. But just another Absolutely. example of those connections that are happening in this passage. Mm -hmm. So at first, why did the disciples not recognize Jesus? And how mm -hmm. does Jesus begin the encounter with them? You know, amazingly, I'm going to be addressing some of this in this Sunday's sermon in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the nature of the resurrection body. And the body, uh, Jesus' resurrection body, had some anomalies to it. There are some unusual features. And one of them is that people who knew him very well didn't recognize him. Hmm. This happened a lot. Mary didn't recognize him at first. She knew him very well. And I mean, it's the kind of thing where you, if you care, somebody, care for somebody and you love somebody, you, can, you study their face, you know them right away. Jesus seems to uh, have appeared differently or there was a, a sovereign kind of effect on the mind where God had to reveal Jesus to them. He they were kept from recognizing him, mm. uh, one of the texts says. It mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean he looked physically differently, but there was something going on in their minds where they just didn't, they didn't know who he was. And so it seems to be one of the ways that we, we see with the resurrection body, there's continuity. The body is raised, but there's significant difference too. And so one of the proofs of the differences is the fact that Jesus' friends, close friends, mm. did not recognize him often. And how does he first then begin this interaction with them? Uh, you know, they don't recognize him. To them, maybe he's just somebody walking on the beach from a distance. Yeah, so they spend the night fishing and catch nothing. So that's oh, a big deal. These are professional fishermen and they, uh, you know, they were, they failed. Uh, they spent all this time and they caught nothing. And so early in the morning, Jesus was standing on the shore and he calls out. Now this is really interesting because one of his logistical strategies for preaching to huge crowds was that he himself would go out in a boat while they were on the shore and he would speak to the people across the water. And there was an acoustic aspect where the sound would actually be magnified because it, it wasn't absorbed by the earth or by trees or by anything. And it would reflect off the surface of the water and, and lots of people could hear him. But now the whole thing's reversed. They're out in the boat and he's on the shore and he calls out to them, but it's the same dynamic. They can hear him. And what does he call out? He said, friends, haven't you caught any fish? And so he knows very well what they've done. <laughs> yeah, this has always been puzzling to me. Why, why Jesus asks these questions that yeah. he must know the answer to? Well, you know, in the Old Testament, um, God says, I form the light and bring darkness. I create prosperity and bring disaster. I do everything. And so it's not an accident that their, that their nets were empty. They caught nothing. Jesus sovereignly orchestrated the motions of the fish in both cases both to not swim in the net at first, none of them, not a single fish, and now a huge quantity of fish, we'll get to that in a moment. But he's orchestrating the whole thing, and yet he initiates with this question, and he does it a lot. He begins conversations with people by asking uh, a question, uh, like the woman with the issue of blood, who touched my clothes? You know, or standing in front of blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? You know, he starts these questions, so he's like, don't you have any fish? You know, so he, he knows exactly what they have. No, we don't have any fish, but anyway. <laughs> How does this, uh, this post-resurrection miracle show that this Jesus, 
mm-hmm. is the same Jesus who preached and did miracles all over Judea and Galilee. Right, so um, we have that resonant connection with a, an earlier miracle, very much like this, the repetition. Um, you know, repetition is just part of how God teaches. It's just the good methodology of any teacher. You repeat things. Mm-hmm. And so we have the feeding of a vast crowd of people with just a few loaves of bread. The only way we really know it's two different accounts is they happen in different chapters in the same gospel and there's different numbers of loaves, five loaves and two fish or seven loaves and and the number of basketfuls is different. But other than that, it's the exact same miracle. Why do it twice? Emphasis, Hmm. all right? So yes, this is the same Jesus, the same power is at work in him. He doesn't have any more power now that he's been raised from the dead. It's not like he's really like a quantum leap in his power. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Mm. but he's doing the same miracle. And so um, he calls out to them, do you have any fish and no? And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So he gives them fishing directions, uh, which is really fascinating. It's amazing to me that they take the advice. Yeah. Um, Again. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> what do we have to lose? They don't know who he is, but they go ahead and try it. Hmm. Yeah, I must wonder too if that came to their minds like, man, I feel like this has happened before, you know, yeah. a sense of deja vu. Like if we've been through this before where we had a really rough night catching fish and yeah. then someone told us to cast I think this is exactly what he was intending. Yeah. It's the same thing with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. It was when he broke bread with them that they understood. Mm-hmm. It was just like, we've done this before. And then yeah. their eyes are open. So he says, you know, cast the net on the right side of the of their boats and they can't even haul it in. There's so many fish. And, and you think about it, you get the feeling that it happened very quickly. Like the, the, it wasn't like hours later, but it's like, we've had a good day. We've, then they would have really ascribed it to their own fishing prowess. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was that he told them where to cast the net and that they immediately, the nets were filled and filled with apparently very large fish, like like the pick of the lot. Yeah. So these are big fish that have swum into the, into the nets. <laughs> Yeah, 153 of the fish that I've caught would not be all that impressive, <laughs> but apparently this was enough that it was uh, weighing heavy on them. Yeah. So which disciple then responds first, and right. how did he know it was the Lord? All right, so John gives uh, the most kind of indications of himself in this chapter. It's very interesting. He ordinarily just refers to um, the, the disciple named John, uh, he refers to him as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he um, identifies himself here this way. But earlier, a few verses ago, he said the two sons of Zebedee were there. Well, who are the two sons of Zebedee? James and John. So it's just interesting. It's like, all right, yeah, sons of Zebedee, you know, look it up kind of thing. <laughs> and, and again, he's, he's purposely leaving his name out. It's an odd thing. And then at the end of the chapter, and we'll get to it at the mm-hmm. very end, but he mm-hmm. says, uh, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loves, he has this whole interaction and he zeroes in on himself there in terms of what was said. And we know from just from church history that John was the last of the apostles to still be alive. Everyone else had, I think, died a martyr's death. But John lived to old age and although in exile, and it says he is the one who wrote these things down. That's who gave you this gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he identifies him that way. And he, he's the one who knows it's the Lord. He, he says, all right, I know who this is. There's no doubt. Uh, the others are still wondering, et cetera. But John knew it yeah. was the Lord. Yeah. So John makes this statement and then uh, Peter responds. Like what he does, always does. Right? <laughs> what does Peter's response to the statement, it's the Lord, show mm-hmm. us about his personality? Well, Peter is a leader. Uh, he ventures forth. We already saw in the previous chapter, John 20, 
how he's he John stands outside the tomb looking in and wondering, you know, and, and looking at the evidence, and then he saw and believed. Peter goes right in, you know. It's like you think, you know, fools rush in where angel fear to dread, that kind of thing. It's a holy place. This is the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes, just goes right in. Um, that's who he is. Yeah. Uh, he's the one that answers the questions, you know, at Caesarea Philippi. He is a leader. Uh, yeah. He's the one that preaches the Pentecost sermon, which is after this restoration. So he is who he is. Uh, just like Saul of Tarsus was not radically different personality-wise mm. when he uh, was converted. It's just all of that zeal and drive and fanaticism went toward Christ instead of hostile to Christ. But, you know, that's his personality makeup, and um, that's who Peter is. So he dives in, he strips off his clothes, um, outer garments anyway, and dives in and swims the distance uh, to the shore while the others are hauling in, you know, the heavy net with all the fish. Hmm. Now, why did it take so long for the other disciples to get to shore? I've always, this has always been an interesting thing yeah. that he outswims a boat. I think of boats as typically faster than people, but yeah. takes them a while to get to shore. And once they get there, what, what happens? Well, verse eight says they were towing the net full of fish. Mm. So that did it. I sure. mean, it's like they had the work to do. Significant You know, it was actually, they had more work to do than Peter who just sure. swam a hundred yards. Um, but you know, that's, that's what slowed them down. And it gave the time for Peter and Jesus on the, on the shore to stand there. Mm. And when they all got there, then they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. So, and some bread. So Jesus already actually had fish. He didn't need the fish they caught. I just find that interesting, but he's ba he's cooked breakfast for them. It's mm. really amazing. Jesus, the cook, you know, yeah. Jesus, the one who cooks breakfast. So. Yeah. And prepares these meals. I mean, you think about mm. sharing the meal with the disciples and then here again, sharing yeah. sharing a meal with them. It's an intimate moment. And so yeah. that around this uh, context, that's where we see the rest of this yeah. chapter. Now, let me say, they, he did say, bring some of the fish you caught. So he does include it, but they already have, he already has fish before they get there. So, it, you know, but it is, sure. it, I think, and I'm going to mention this in, on, Sunday's, on Sunday's sermon about the resurrection. Five of Jesus' post-resurrection encounters with his disciples involve food. Hmm. Five of them. So, you know, this is one of the five. Uh, Jesus is eating with them. Hmm. Uh, although he's not depicted eating, in Luke's gospel, he asks for broiled fish and eats. eats so he can consume food in this resurrection body. Mm -hmm. Now, John has given us in other places as well certain details. Why does John give us details like the number of the fish and the condition of the net? Well, since I follow the uh, Antiochene school of biblical interpretation, not the Alexandrian school, Anti the school at Antioch was all grammatical historical. The reason John told us it was 153 is because it was 153. <laughs> But if you're Alexandrian, you're going to find symbolism. Mm. And it's an actually an interesting number mathematically. Most people don't know this, but it is, I don't know the high number, but I will, I will tell you what it is. You can figure out what the high number is. It's one plus two plus three plus four plus five plus six plus seven, et cetera, until you get to 153. I think it's 17. Um, one plus two plus three all the way up to 17 is 153. So it's like a triangle number. Hmm. What do we do with that? I have no idea. And that's why I'm not an allegorist. I don't See, do anything. I was waiting for the punchline. I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. But it's there was, a perfect it was... number. It's a magic number. I mean, they did all kinds of stuff with numbers, um, but I just thought I'd mention it. Uh, it's, an, it's an interesting, fascinating number. But for me, I'm just going to push all that aside and say, look, and the problem with, with allegory is you don't ever have a confirmation loop mm. to tell you that your interpretation of the number is the correct one. Yeah. 
So there's nothing I can do with it. I, there's nothing, all I can say is it's a lot of big fish. Yeah. And uh, by the way, giving Peter credit, he did help them haul it finally up onto the shore, which is the harder work to do once it's you know out of the water and pulling it up. So he uh, was not shirking his duty, but you know, I mean, think there's just that realism. Right. And that's the whole thing. When you read the gospels, when you read the Bible, it's real. It doesn't read like mythology. This is a miracle, mm -hmm. but it's not, it doesn't feel like mythology to me. It just says there were, there were 153 big fish. Yeah. So. Yeah. It seems like the, the details are quantities or amounts, things that those who would have read this account, mm -hmm. who were more familiar maybe than I am with fishing practices in the mm -hmm. first century would have said, wow, 153, that is a lot, a you big, know, and that, they would have understood and that realism yeah. is, is really helpful. That's no, a big catch. Yeah. yeah. And I also, I want to say this, just the sovereignty of, and I mentioned it, but I want to say it again, the sovereignty of Jesus over nature. He's mm -hmm. in total control. I mean, what makes a fish turn left or turn right or go up or go down in the water? Uh, you know, it's a mystery. But Jesus controls that. He controls the motion of the fish, just like God mm -hmm. controlled the whale that swallowed Jonah. I mean, it's just was not an accident. He controls everything. So yeah. it's powerful. Absolutely. How does this idea of a physical breakfast factor in? You mentioned it a moment ago, but maybe just we can zero in on it for a mm -hmm. moment. How does that factor into this post-resurrection mm -hmm. appearance or the other appearances of Jesus? Well, just in the ancient Near East, uh, eating a meal is, is intense fellowship, friendship, and uh, we're gonna eat with him in the kingdom of heaven. So at least it tells me, uh, especially the Luke account, not this one, because we don't actually see Jesus eating in this. He could have just cooked the meal for them because they needed food. Um, but it, it just there are clear statements that we're going to sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And what are we going to do? We're going to eat and drink. And so there is that sense of intimacy and fellowship and friendship. One other thing, uh, I don't think it's allegorical to link fish to people who need to be saved. Jesus linked them when he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So what this teaches me is that he's in control of the spiritual harvest too. Hmm. And so frequently we can, this is not allegory here, this is just practicality, because he himself made the metaphor of fishers of men, that we will labor and seemingly catch nothing. And we need to take this story back to him in prayer and say, Lord, we've been laboring and we're not seeing people saved. Hmm. Um, and he'll tell us, throw your net on the right side of the boat, whatever that means, go do X and I'll bless it. I'll hmm. cause the fish to swim into the net. So I find evangelistic hope in this story. Yeah, it's a very helpful insight as we pray that the Lord would increase our fruitfulness mm -hmm. in advancing the gospel. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, what were the disciples tempted in this moment to ask Jesus, and why don't they ask it? Yeah, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so again, just the statement, none of them you know, asked who are you, they knew he was the Lord. That's an odd thing. It's like, I didn't ask you, Wes, when you came into my office, who are you? I knew it was you. Mm -hmm. You're like, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you saw my face, yeah. you should have known who yeah. I was. So something odd is going on there. There was an inner knowledge that he was the resurrected mm -hmm. Lord. Not It was not sensory per se, although he did have a physical body. It was like an inner revelation. Like it was like, the negative side would be it was hidden from them who he was. Now it is revealed to them who he was. I guess that's it. But it's an odd statement. None of them dared ask who he was. They knew it was the Lord. It's hmm. like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there'd be a reason for them to be afraid of him, but yeah. uh, just interesting that they 
They don't ask. Before we move to verses 15 through 23, Mm -hmm. I want to ask, why do you think some commentators have difficulty with the fact that John calls this the third appearance of Jesus in verse 14? I mean, it seems like there have been many appearances when you put the four Gospels together. What can we make of this? Well, I, I just would keep it simple and say this is the third in John's Gospel the third time that he meets with the group of the apostles. Mm. And I don't think they're all there, but they are representative of the apostles. And they are the key. They are the foundation. Humanly speaking, Peter and the other apostles are the foundation on which the church is built, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so this, uh, they were going to be eyewitnesses. And this is the third time this, this group of the twelve has seen the resurrected Jesus. Mm. That's just how I'm keeping it. Just keep it simple. Yes, there was interaction with the women. There was interaction with, you know, but these are the 12. They are the the leaders of the church. Well, this has been part one of episode 44 in the book of John. We would invite you to join us next time for our final episode in the book of John as we conclude with part two of episode 44. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.